Okay, so thank you guys so much for coming tonight. Um, tonight we're going to be in Revelation chapter 13, so if you have your Bibles, you can get, you can go ahead and turn there. Um, tonight we're going to be spending a lot of time talking about, so last week we really got into talking about the birth of Christ, talking about this weird narrative that Revelation 12 gives us where it talks about the birth of Christ and then... And then it talks about the Israel's time in the wilderness after they escaped from ex- after they escaped from the Egyptians and their exodus. But then it also gets into Christ's defeat of Satan. And so tonight it kind of takes that a step further and gives us the next part of this story. And so tonight it specifically gets into the two beasts, which if you guys have ever heard about the mark of the beast or anything like that, which I'm sure your grandparents talk about it a lot, that's what we're going to talk about tonight. So we're going to be getting rid of some of the some of the misconceptions around this passage and looking at what this text actually says about these things. So we're in week two of our look into the victory of Christ. So last week we talked we were in Revelation chapter twelve. This week we're in chapter thirteen, and this is really going to show us this week what we're saved from and what it is that we must overcome if we're in Christ. So um, there's a lot of confusing language here. So if at any point you have questions, feel free to raise your hands. Um, But this picks up from the end of 12, so I'm going to start there. So at the very end of chapter 12, it's gone through this thing where it talks about how there's this dragon, which we talked about as Satan, and there's this woman who is Israel, and then her child is Jesus. And so there's this big narrative where there's a dragon and the woman, and then then a dragon and her child fight, and the dragon ends up losing, is cast out, and all this stuff. And so at the very end, it says, um, at the very end of 12, it says, Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her offspring on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. So then picking up in 13, it says, And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of the heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for forty-two months. It opened its mouth to utter, utter blasphemies against God blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. And it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is the call for the endurance and faith of the saints. So in this beginning part here, this talks about the first beast. There's two beasts we're going to talk about. This is the first one here. Um, it might be helpful to think of the dragon and the two beasts as kind of like a, an evil reflection of the Trinity. Like it's, it's kind of the same thing. The dragon essentially here represents God the Father. Then the second dragon represents God the Son and then God the Holy Spirit. We see a lot of similarities between them, and this is all intentional. But so, first of all, who is the beast? Last week, we talked about the dragon being Satan, this woman, and her child. But this week, we introduce two new characters to this. So, in Daniel chapter 7, specifically, we don't have to turn there, but in Daniel chapter 7, in the first, like, 21 verses there, we see Daniel 
detail this account of where he sees these four beasts and they're coming up out of the sea. And one of them, you know, is like a leopard. One of them is like a, it's like a bear. You know, they have these different qualities and stuff. And so in this chapter, we see the similarities between those beasts and this beast. Essentially, this beast is just kind of a culmination of all four of those put into one. So this is picking up right from what Daniel was talking about in chapter seven, all the way back in the Old Testament. Daniel's like, hey, I'm seeing these beasts. It's this crazy vision that I'm having. And he's explaining this to the Israelites and to those who are listening to him. Now here, these Israelites and these, these Christians who were, who were listening to John's visions here, who were reading these letters, they knew about Daniel's visions. So they were like, well, wait, so this is, this is a bigger beast that's come. Like this is something that is all four of these other beasts put together into one. Now, so many have said that the beast in Revelation here describes Caesars, you know, describes Rome and the empire that was around at the time. And I think that this is partially true. Remember, for those of you who have been here since week one, we're taking an approach to Revelation that assumes that multiple different interpretations of this can be true at the same time. So from week one, we've talked about how how there are some who believe that all of the events of Revelation are already, they've already happened there in the past. There's some that believe that it kind of occurs again and again throughout history. And then there's some who believe that everything is yet to happen in the future. Essentially, here, for the people that Revelation was written to, the, the persecuted and beat down Christians under this time, under the rule of Domitian, the beast for them for sure represented the Roman Empire. Like, they're living under this. They're, they're seeing the rule of Caesar. All this is happening to them. They're being killed. They're being martyred. All this is going on. They're seeing their churches shut down and destroyed. They're being thrown into jail. So for them, this beast was absolutely the current emperor. However... For them, that was the culmination of everything that they'd seen before. Like these, these four beasts in Daniel, they represent the four kingdoms that were powerful at the time. So to put them all together, they're like, hey, this is far worse than any of those. But it doesn't end there because the beast also represents more than just Rome. The beast is a representation, and this is the first blank here. The beast is a representation of world powers that stand opposed to Christ. The beast is a representation of world powers that stand opposed to Christ. Any, any government, any authority, any politician, any person who comes into power in this world and stands opposed to the gospel of Christ, which, for being honest, is most of them, that's who this is talking about here. This is describing any power. So yes, at the time, it was referring to Nero and Domitian and the Roman emperor, and it was referring to all the persecution that was happening there, but this goes on because it goes on to talk about you know, this is going to go on to refer to, to many, many political leaders who would come after this, even today. And in the future, we're going to see more and more political leaders come along who are opposed to the gospel, who are opposed to Christ, and who hate Christians. Even if they don't outright say that, they're still opposed to the message of Christ. And so this beast here is meant to represent any, any political opponent that rises up that Satan uses for his purpose. What this means is that the beast is not just one person or even one government. It's not only representing Rome, and it's not only representing some future leader who's going to come up and oppose Christ. It represents all the world powers who come about who oppose the gospel. Now, futurists, those who believe that everything in this book is going to happen in the future, so specifically dispensationalists, believe that this first beast represents one single political leader who's going to come and rule over most of the world and dominate most of the world, and I, and I believe that the second beast that comes along is essentially just one religious counterpart of that first beast who tells people, hey, it's okay, you can trust this guy. Um, 
However, for our purposes, we're going to assume that this is referring to multiple people over the course of history. So the description of this beast shows us a little bit more about who he is and what his purpose is. See, the description of this beast shows us that he has heads and horns just like the dragon. So in, in chapter 12, if you go back to verse 3, it talks about this description of the dragon. He has multiple heads, he has the diadems, he has the horns. And we talked about how back then that represented great power and authority. It's showing that he's powerful, that he has authority, that he's been given authority by God. And so this beast is the agent of Satan created by him to do what he cannot do on his own. Satan's been cast out, he's been thrown down, he's been defeated by Christ. So he raises up human leaders who can do his mission for him. In other words, Satan gives world powers the power and authority to carry out his mission here on earth. He gives world powers the power and authority to carry out his mission here on earth. He uses people just like us to deceive us and lead us away from Christ. So that when we look to politicians and when we look to world leaders, we expect them to be able to save us. We expect them to be able to make things better. That's why politics have people so heavily divided right now. It's because everyone's looking for a political person to save them, a political person to make things better. And right here, John is telling the Christians at that time and us today, hey, this isn't going to work out for you because none of these leaders truly have your best interests at heart. And these leaders cannot save you like Christ can. They may look powerful. They may look like they have authority, but that's given to them by Satan to carry out his purpose. So then... In verse 3, we see that the beast is described as having a mortal wound that is not that is then healed miraculously. And that's something that all the people of the world, they see this and they're like, well, this is amazing. Like we've got, we've got to follow this guy because clearly he, he's been saved from death. This is purposefully, there's a few things we can take from this. First, this is purposefully a reference to the appearance of Christ in chapter 5, verse 6. The first, one of the first times we see Christ on the throne and he's, presented as a lamb who is standing though he has been slain. So he, he looks like he has been slain. He looks like he's dead, but he's alive and he's standing in front of the throne. But now we see this beast who has a mortal wound and yet is healed. It's exactly the same thing. This beast is trying to make himself appear like Christ. He's trying to, he's trying to appear as if he has these amazing powers. And so already we see the beast attempting to betray himself as a savior and a messiah so people will follow him and worship him. However, this also, once again, can apply to Rome as well. This is likely a reference to the suicide of Nero that had happened just a few years earlier when people thought that the Roman Empire was going to fall apart because its leader committed suicide. Instead, they got Domitian, who came along and picked right up again persecuting Christians and throwing them in jail and killing them, exactly like Nero was doing before. And so not only was the Roman Empire not dead, but they came back as strong as they were before. But so then in the next verse, we see the worshipers asking this question. So they're, they're starting to follow the beast. They're starting to trust the beast. They're starting to listen to the things that he says. And it says they worshiped the beast saying, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? This, is, this mirrors what Israel says to God after he rescues them from Egypt in Exodus 15, 11. So they've come out of Egypt. God has rescued them from the Egyptians. They've, the Exodus has already happened and they're in the wilderness and they're saying, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? 
who is like you, God? We're going to continue to see a lot of parallels here between the beast and God. This also echoes, once again, the praise that was often given to Caesar anytime he walked into a city. Anytime he came into a city, people would be like, who is like Caesar? Who is like you, O Caesar? And so, once again, we're seeing these parallels between the governments of that day that were oppressing Christians and God. Like this beast is clearly taking, trying to appear like God, but also taking the form of governments and world leaders and authorities and, think, and people that other people look up to. So then we see that the beast is given a mouth and authority to speak. Much like how before we've seen that God gives Satan permission to speak. He has to give him permission to do anything. Here we see that that God that the Satan gives the beast authority to speak and power to roam the earth, and he gives him his own authority to torture people and to lead people astray and to guide people away from God. Just like, and then um, we see that he's even given a mouth and he's given permission by extension by God to blaspheme him and to speak like and to speak things against God and who he is and those who dwell in heaven. Then it talks about how he, he does it for this specific time period. And just like in chapter 12, this time period, it comes straight out of, out of Daniel. When Daniel was talking about the half sabbaticals, this is just a very, all you need to know is this is a very symbolic period of time. It just represents, hey, for a certain amount of time, the beast is given permission to do all of these things, to speak out against God, to blaspheme, to do all of this. It's not meant to be taken re- literally. However, once again, so this is where futurists and dispensationalists would say that this refers to the second half of the Great Tribulation. The first half we saw in chapter 12, the second half starts now. So moving on, we see that the beast is not just given authority to speak out against God. He's not just given authority to blaspheme God. He's not just given authority to do all this, but he's given authority to act against God's people. He's, the beast is given power and authority to persecute the church. The beast is given power and authority to persecute the church. This, the Christians, for the Christians here, this was originally, that this was originally written for. They certainly felt this in the time that they were alive. They certainly saw this going on. We saw that, the, that their government was persecuting them heavily. They were, their churches were being shut down. They're being thrown in jail. They're being killed. All of this is going on around them. And so they feel this. They know what's happening and they, they feel the pain of this authority that the beast has been given. And even today, we still see that there are governments that are persecuting Christians. We still see that there are people who are killed for their faith, they're thrown in jail for their faith, and all of this. But I think, in truth, we can see that even in our own government now, there's still a lot of sentiment that is against Christianity. And there's still even moments now where we can see where this persecution can happen down the line. Like, this is something that is going to continue to repeat itself over and over again throughout history. Then, so we get into the last two verses in this section, and we see a call to believers who likely feel discouraged when they're reading this. Because I think for all of us, we can read this section about all these horrible things that are happening, about the governments who are against Christians and wanting to overthrow Christians. It's easy for any of us to become discouraged. But especially for those believers back then who were in the midst of this, who felt this pain, who were hiding in an underground, and they didn't know which day was going to be their last day. And so then... God gives them this encouragement. He, one, reminds them of their old scriptures. And he says, hey, this is what's going to happen to you. You are going to be killed. You're going to be persecuted. All this is going to happen to you. But you have to endure patiently because 
I am still enough for you. Christ is still enough for you, and he's still so much better than any of the evil you could experience here. See, the last two verses in this section are essentially a call to believers to find patient endurance and to press on and to live through this suffering and hardship knowing that it's going to make them better. It's going to draw them closer to Christ. And we see in Romans, we see that for us to be glorified with Christ, we must first endure with him in his suffering. And so here, this is just a reminder that for us as believers, we're going to endure suffering here. We're going to experience these hardships and and things on this side of eternity. But all of this is necessary for our growth as believers and Christians as we continue to become more like Christ. So then we get to the second beast. Um, Before we even read this, I do want to say, like, anytime you've ever heard probably your parents or your grandparents or anybody talk about the beast or the mark of the beast, this is the passage that they're talking about, and this is the beast that they're talking about. So starting in verse 11, picking back up in chapter 13, it says here, Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence. It makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. And it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the head, on the hands or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has an understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. So immediately what we see is that the second beast it emerges onto the scene to enlist worshipers for the first beast. The second beast comes in with, and it's given authority by the first beast. So Satan gives authority to the first beast. First beast gives authority to the second beast. Second beast even commands his followers to make an image to worship all of the beasts and Satan. So there's just this long line of deception that's happening here. But what we see with the second beast is that the second beast is not a political figure. It's not somebody who immediately comes along and is popular with the world. This is somebody who, who, who essentially is referring to himself. It's kind of enlisting worshipers for the first beast in much the same way that God would raise up prophets in the Old Testament. In fact, later on in Revelation, we're even going to see the second beast referred to as the false prophet. So the second beast is really acting as somebody who's, who's bringing in praise for Satan and for the first beast. He's, he's kind of eliciting praise from the people. He's religiously moving the people to worship anything other than God. Whether they're worshiping images of the beast, whether they're worshiping him, whether they're worshiping the first beast or Satan, it doesn't matter. He's just trying to draw people away from God and convince them that it's okay to live like this. So the second beast, what we see here is that the second beast is a representation of religious leaders meant to lead people astray. The second beast is a representation of religious leaders meant to live people astray. This is even taken a step further when we look at the appearance of the second beast. The appearance of the 
second beast, which is so unlike the appearance of the first beast, because the first beast, the first beast had, had heads and horns and it looked like it had been slain, but it came back to life. Like the first beast is meant to look powerful and authoritative. It's meant to be someone that you want to follow into battle. Like the first beast is meant to look big and, and intimidating. But the second beast, it says, looks like a lamb. The second beast is meant to look like Jesus. The second beast here is meant to look like something that we all know that we can trust, and that's on purpose. It's supposed to make people feel safe and at ease so that they don't notice that when it speaks, it speaks with the voice of the dragon. It speaks with the voice of Satan. The only way that we can know the second beast apart from Christ is by its words. And that's what's important here in its description is that it looks like a lamb, but it speaks with the voice of the dragon. It's even doing signs and wonders and miracles. It is doing everything. It's calling down fire from heaven. It is doing all the things that we saw Jesus do, that we've seen God do. It is doing all of these things meant to make people trust it, meant to make people follow it, meant to make people believe that it is the truth, that they, if they follow this beast, then they are following Christ. But in truth, it is all a lie. And the only way we can tell the difference is by the words that it is speaking. And to be clear, this beast isn't actually taking the form of Jesus. Like, I've heard a lot of people say before that there's going to be, you know, this, this person who comes along, he's going to look like Jesus. We're going to think that he's Jesus coming back to earth. But that's not what this is saying. He's not actually meaning to look like Jesus. Instead, what, what it's saying here is that he's someone who imitates and emulates Christ. He's someone who's going to look like how all of us would hope to look like Christ. And his actions and the things that he does, he's going to emulate Christ. It's going to be someone that we can look at and be like, hey, that's a solid guy. He he's, must be teaching the word because look at the great things that he's doing. Look at the signs and wonders and miracles that he's performing. So this beast, it pushes people to praise the first beast. And it even gives this idol to worship. It does all of these amazing signs and wonders. And it convinces people that by its actions that it is like Christ, that it is sent from Christ. Essentially, this goal, the goal of this beast is just to make people trust the first beast and to bring praise and worship back to Satan. Just like how the first beast did not represent one person but many, this beast also represents many people. It represents false teachers and false prophets and those who claim to have the authority of Christ but lead others away from him. And that's why this one is a lot more subtle and a lot more dangerous because the first one it's very obviously a beast. People know that. People follow it because it is a beast, because it's a powerful leader. This one people follow because they think that they're doing the right thing, because they're not paying attention, because they're led astray by seeing the things that it can do, by seeing that it is like Christ in some ways. And so the second beast is the one that is subtle and that is dangerous because it's the one that claims to be from Christ, that makes the claim that it is, that it is, is ordained and sent by God so that when you follow it, you suddenly trust the first beast. You suddenly trust the words of Satan instead of the words of God. The only way that we can know the difference is in their words. See, false teachers always sound really good and they always look really good. There's always just something a little bit off about the things that they're saying. There's just a little bit of heresy sprinkled in here. It's always just a little bit off from the truth. They always say a lot of good things, and then they say one thing that's maybe a little bit off, but if we're not paying attention to what God's Word says, then we don't notice that. And for all the hundreds and thousands and millions of people who 
aren't spending their time in God's words, they don't know the difference. They hear something and think that it's true because it sounds good, because they see the signs and wonders and think that that is the evidence of the truth, not the words that are spoken, not the word of God. That's why we should always, always, anytime we hear anybody who's speaking, whether or not they're a popular speaker, whoever they are, we should always be comparing them and pushing back on the word of God in all situations. We should always be taking everything back to scripture. Anytime we hear anybody speaking, we should always be testing what everybody says against scripture. We should always be testing what they say against what scripture says. We should look at the people who are following and supporting them and look at the people that they follow and support and notice the kind of patterns that are happening in their lives. And so in all of this, what we see is just this need for discernment that comes along because these these beasts that are going to come along and lead plenty of people astray, they're subtle. And it's sometimes hard for us to see it. Even Sometimes it's even hard for those who are in Christ to see it. So finally, we get to the actual mark of the beast. Let me say this from the start. The mark of the beast, I didn't put this in your notes. So I just want to make sure we're clear on this. The mark of the beast is not meant to be taken literally. It is symbolic. The mark of the beast is not meant to be taken literally. Just like the rest of the book of Revelation, this isn't actually meant to be taken literally. We're not looking for a microchip embedded in somebody or a barcode on somebody's head or arm. And those are funny and entertaining ideas, but they're not what this passage is saying. It's what a lot of people that I even know personally teach as the truth, but it's not what the Bible says here. What this is, is this is a reference to, if you look back a few chapters earlier, back when it talks about Christ about God coming and sealing his people. And it says that he seals them on their foreheads for the day of salvation. It says that he, he seals his own people for himself so that they can't be touched by the schemes of Satan, so they can't be touched by everything that's going to happen to everyone else. That's what this is referencing. Just like how God seals his people, Satan also seals his own people. Just like how God protects us from the schemes of Satan. Satan essentially does the same thing, but in reverse, he protects his people from God. And so what we see here is this, this symbolic sealing. And it's like very simply put, this seal that it's talking about, everybody back then would have understood. They would have been familiar with the whole idea of how slavery worked back then. See, back then, whenever you were owned by someone, they literally branded you with this seal, with a mark on your body. It was either... It was usually on your arm somewhere, which is why it talks about it being on the arm here. But that once you were branded by somebody, that meant that you worked for them. You had to do the things that they said. So when it talks about being sealed here, this is, this is him saying, hey, those, those people who are sealed by Satan, like now they're bound to him. And it talks about it being on their, on their foreheads because their minds are under his control. Their minds are fully enveloped with Satan and his thoughts and his ideals and the things that he wants them to believe and follow. Just like how those of us who are in Christ, our minds are on Christ. We believe in the things that he says because he's given us the ability to believe in the things that he says. And so in all of this, we see that the work of Satan is completely opposed to the work of Christ and the work of God. And what God is doing to save us, Satan is actively doing the opposite. To the point that we're going to get to the point in the next chapter where we're going to see all of this kind of come to a head. And we're going to see this big fight between Christ and Satan and all of this going on. And in all of this, we see the victory of Christ for his people because his people have been sealed and they're not going to be bound by Satan any longer. 
The, the number six here is not some special satanic number. Number six simply is simply a, re- a representation of fallen man. It even says that here, that it represents the number of man. All this means is that, you know, if seven is the number of completion, we've talked about this before, it's often what, what is used in ancient times as the number of completion. If seven is the number of completion, then six is just not seven. That's exactly what that means. It means it's not good enough. It means it missed the mark. And so, in all of this, it's just a reminder that Satan's people are Satan's people because they missed the mark and because they didn't repent of their sins. They didn't follow Christ. His righteousness is not on them. And so when they go to stand before him, they're not going to be held by the righteousness of Christ. And all God sees is the work of Satan in their lives. This isn't some riddle to solve. John's encouragement here is not for us to try and figure out who bears the mark of the beast and who doesn't. His encouragement is that those of us who belong to Christ are able to recognize the beast and we should identify him as such. So what does this mean for us, the, the practical application here? This means that we, as Christians, are going to continue to see people rise up against the gospel. It's going to happen no matter what. Until Christ comes back and consummates this world and destroys this current world and brings us into glory in the new heavens and new earth, people are going to rise up against the gospel. It's never going to end. We're going to continue to see political and religious leaders rise up from everywhere. First of all, this means that we're always going to feel out of place politically because we're not, we're not called to bring praise to political leaders. To pray for them, yes, to vote wisely, sure, but no political leader can save us. And whatever is popular politically is not always going to be friendly to Christians. I think most of us know that and we feel that now. Whether or not we're being persecuted Politics is never the friend of Christians because politics is built around a system that is designed to lead people astray and to lead people away from God. See, we must learn patient endurance. Whether or not we're experiencing suffering at the hands of our government, whether or not we're dealing with death and decay and all of this stuff that happens when the government is in control and they hate Christians— The bottom line is we're going to suffer and this world is going to hate us. These are things that are promised to us in Scripture. It may not be through the form of persecution to the extent that these Christians experienced it. But we're going to experience suffering and the world is going to hate us. And so we must learn patient endurance. Not just enduring the world, but patiently enduring the world. Waiting for the hope that is to come in Christ for the day when all things will be made right and everything will be made new. We must cling to the hope that is in Christ above all else. But see, the religious side of this is far more subtle than the political side of it. The religious side is the the Joseph Smiths and the Mohammeds and the Bill Johnsons of the world who, who lead thousands of people astray by claiming to follow Christ, but claiming to have this new special version of Christ, this new special knowledge that nobody else before them had. And they lead people astray who mean well and who want to love Jesus, but just aren't following the right one. This is the religious leaders of today who claim to be from God, who claim to be following Christ, but lead people further from Christ than they would have ever gotten on their own. So for that, we must become good at discernment. We must become good at discernment. Just because something sounds good does not make it true because false teaching is always going to be popular. False teaching is always going to be what people want to hear. So we have to be good at discerning what is actually the word of God and what isn't, what is actually true and what isn't. Our 
best guard against false teaching is always going to be the truth. Our best guard against anything that contradicts God's word is always going to be knowing what God's word says about that. And so we have to have discernment in this. And so just to wrap this up, let this be the reminder for all of us that there is a greater hope coming, that there is that we can lean on the goodness and the grace and the mercy and the hope that is found in Christ. But that doesn't mean that life here is not going to be difficult. It doesn't mean that we're not going to suffer. And it doesn't mean that we're not going to be, we're not going to have people trying to lead us astray, astray constantly. So for us, that means that we have to endure patiently and we have to be good at discernment and we have to find our hope in nothing else but Christ because nothing else is the answer and nothing else can save us. So let's pray. God, I thank you so much that we can open up your word, that we can come here, that we can, that we can worship you, God, that we can praise you for who you are, knowing that, God, that you are good, that you are holy, that you are righteous. God, that you have already overcome the schemes of the devil, that you have already won this victory for us, that, we don't, that though we fight with the spiritual battle, that we fight all of this in our lives, that we can still hold on to the hope that this that this battle is already won and that one day it'll be over for good. God, help us to endure patiently. Help us to face all of life's trials knowing who you are and clinging to the truth of your word and clinging to the hope that awaits us. God, help us to be good at discernment. Help us to, God, help us to cling to you and your truth Help us to cling to the doctrines that we love, that that endure the test of time. Help us to cling to good theology and good teaching. And above all, God, help us to cling to your word. Help us to live out what this says and to be who you have called us to be. God, I pray that we could glorify you in everything that we do. And I pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.